Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Well, welcome everyone to Beyond Surviving, the safe space for survivors of childhood sexual abuse to receive support, resources, and share their stories. Uh, Beyond Surviving is about freedom, healing, connection, and even laughter and fun. Most importantly, it's about letting go of the pain of abuse and finally moving on. I'm Rachel Grant, and I'm a sexual abuse recovery coach and the author of Beyond Surviving, The Final Stage of Recovery from Sexual Abuse. And you can learn more about me and the program at rachelgrantcoaching.com. But more importantly, folks, today I have here with me Emily Nagoski, who is going to be sharing with us the work she does combining sex education and stress education to teach women to live with confidence and joy inside their bodies. I have to tell you all, when I saw Emily's uh, TED Talk, I was all over it. I was like, man, first of all, it came to me by way of a client. Um, and I was so glad they sent it my way because it just resonates so very much. And we're going to have a great conversation today with this award-winning author um, and New York Times best-selling author of Come As You Are, pun intended. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think. I mean, but also literally, so I, we had, I had to like argue strongly in favor of the title because the publisher, uh, who was guy felt like come as you are is not aspirational enough. And because he's a guy couldn't recognize that for women already being everything you need to be is the most aspirational thing we can imagine. Ew. 
oh my goodness. Well, that's a talking point right there. I mean, let's just go there because this really is an invitation. There are other beautiful things about you, right? You uh, have an MS in counseling and a PhD in health behavior. You have cats and dogs and you live with a cartoonist. I feel that from your environment, <laughs> you're seen there. But yeah, like, wow, having to advocate just right off the bat for, for women to be able to just be without any modification, uh, tell me more about that. What inspires you about that? Oh. <laughs> yeah, big question. So, just from the yeah. Let's just start there. So <laughs> most people who write like sex advice kinds of books have the ultimate goal of helping the reader change something about themselves, fix some problem. And because I spend so much time dwelling in the science, I love the science. It's really the thing that I uniquely as a sex educator, the thing I do, every sex educator has a different approach in, and mine really is like, I love affective neuroscience. I love psychophysiology. I love anatomy and neuroanatomy. And when you understand sexuality from that point of view, you cannot help noticing that all of us are made of the same parts, just organized in different ways. And every single one of the organizations is equally good. It is the result of this specific individual navigating the world as themselves and their body and brain reacting to the world. Mm. It is the case that a lot of people struggle around sexuality and it's not because they're broken it's because the world around them is broken oh my goodness okay so my well, goal I... as an author is to not say look here's something wrong with you let me help you fix your problem is to say look at how screwed up the world is this is all the lies you've been told i know you may have felt broken or unlovable or sick or like there's something wrong with you and no everything you're experiencing is just a normal part of what human sexuality is yeah cheers to that emily i knew we were going to be able to geek out together because neuroscience is really my jam too ultimately when i started to read about neuroscience through the lens of healing from sexual trauma and yeah. how the brain is impacted and injured and how the nervous system is impacted which then of course trickles out into all the behaviors right and the, the experiences of connection and desire and pleasure and intimacy um, it really transformed my life so i'm really excited to to be here um, with you and to to dig into that and i think what you're bringing to the table right from the jump is is how we get so we have external lived experiences and then we have external messaging that kind of crafts and creates this soup that we're spinning and swimming around in but we keep thinking it's just me right it's just me it's just me it's just me mm -hmm. and so as we start to turn our lens out and see no this has impacted my sexual blueprint this has changed the way i think about my body or what attraction is or how i should have an orgasm right then that all gets you know uh you know switched around so when you think about some of the key messaging or when you think about the things that are broken that are around us that impact particularly for women our sexuality could you bullet point a few of those things for us get, <laughs> well, let's get into some of the specifics yeah so cultural messaging, part one, on the day we're born, uh, people look at our genitals and they go, it's a girl. And 
with that declaration, we are handed a handbook of rules and regulations about how to live in this body. And all of those rules and regulations are something that in our book, Burnout, my sister and I call human giver syndrome. We're told from day one that we have a moral obligation to be pretty, happy, calm, generous, and unfailingly attentive to the needs of others from the mm. beginning. So if you yeah. think about the central nervous system of a tiny infant human being who's being taught that her job is to be happy and calm when she has uncomfortable feelings happening in her body, especially as she gains language and starts like walking around in the world as an individual expressing herself. Since she's supposed to be pretty happy and calm, if she expresses anger, her adult caregivers are going to respond to that saying that as a naughty behavior, there's something wrong. No, don't be angry. That's, I was literally told I look ugly when I'm angry, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And if you're sad, the language is, oh, don't be sad. It makes me so sad when I see you sad. Put a smile on your face or even go to your room until you can put yeah. a smile on your face. And the central nervous system is learning that anytime any of these difficult emotions are activated, these aversive states of fear, rage, and panic or grief, we have to hide that. Our body is only allowed to process that in isolation, which is not how humans are designed to process difficult emotions and to feel ashamed if we have those feelings in public. Yeah, yeah. And we're not Thank lovable. You. Like we walk around with this like right. positive affect, pretending that we're fine, being nice to everybody because we don't want to inconvenience anyone else with something as difficult as our difficult feelings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. it, it, it transitions into our, I'm taking so long to answer this question. I'm sorry. You're not taking so long. It's beautiful. Keep it coming. <laughs> so we take a human giver. She's very well trained at this point. messaging right there. Like don't take up too much space as a woman. Oh, God. Girlfriend. I mean, it's also just like an individual thing that I like get very excited and nerdy and wrapped up and like could talk for like forever about answering one question. But we take our human giver uh, who's gotten to adolescence approaching adulthood. And she's been taught that her needs do not matter. Her her job is to be pretty happy, calm, generous and attentive to other people's needs. And we put her in a sexual situation with a partner for the first time and her attention She's not allowed to pay attention to her own internal experience. All of her attention has to go to her partner and whether or not she's meeting their expectations, whether or not she's meeting their needs. So even if she's got a partner who genuinely asks, hey, do you like this? Whatever they're doing, what is the only answer a giver can give to the question? wonderful oh yeah it's, yeah it's so good no and other option so many women don't even check in with their internal experience when they're asked yeah. do you like this they're just clicking through like what does my partner expect me to say what would make them happy for me to say because mm-hmm. our pleasure is so much less important according to these cultural rules that we are saturated in from day one that it doesn't even occur to us to wonder even how we would tell whether this sensation is pleasurable or not. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So you're right about it. There, there's so many layers there and we could talk about, you know, any one of those for a very long time. What I'm really present to from what you shared, Emily, is 
just the the first answer as needing to always be yes and the dissociation that is occurring and a thought that came to me as you were sharing two thoughts that came to me was one how often the the first sexual experience is painful mm-hmm. and women grit their teeth through it and so this and whole idea of that's like pain normal and- pleasure and believe that's normal. And then this culturalization is happening for men too, right? They're being given the messages. They're not being given the information or, you know, to show up differently as well, or to be attuned. And so we have some, you know, problems on both sides of the equation, but women learning to, to advocate for themselves and take up space and identify pleasure and be in their bodies um, are just so critical um, on so many levels. I know you talk a lot about embodiment. This is something that you care deeply about. Um, and I love this phrasing that you use confidence and joy inside your body. And I just like, I get shivers, even when I just think about the idea of what is it to feel confidence, not confident, but confidence inside mm-hmm. my body and joy in my body. And, you know, how do you distinguish that between being in versus out of your body? What are things that women can start to do to start to prioritize themselves and and develop that kind of embodiment? So for me, uh, confidence means knowing what is true, knowing what's true about your body, knowing what's true about your sexuality, your life history, your family of origin, your culture of origin, the life you're living now, and your hopes and dreams of what you could be living in the future. Knowing what's true, even if it's not what you wish were true, and knowing mm-hmm. what's true, even if it's not what you were told is true. That's sort of like reckoning with what's actually true about me, regardless yeah. of what anybody else's opinions are about what should be true about me. Confidence is knowing what's true. And joy is the hard part because joy is loving what's true. Loving what's true about your body and your sexuality and your life history and your family of origin and your culture of origin and the hopes and dreams you have for yourself. Loving what's true, even when it's not what you wish were true. And even when it's not what other people say is supposed to be true. You can see why that's the hard part, right? That's an amazingly hard part because first of all, it's really doing the inventory of what's actually so, not what is delusion or illusion or fantasy or hope for, if I'm hearing you correctly. Yeah, I imagine a lot of people walking around sort of like neck deep in water uh and they're acting as if all the things they've been taught are supposed to be true actually are true and anything that isn't actually true for them they're just living as if uh-huh right that just right. doesn't exist they're neglecting like people um who are not yet in a place to explore their trauma history for example mm. their brain will do this wonderful protective thing of like locking it away and hiding it exactly that yeah until eventually like it starts to knock on the door and want mm-hmm. to come out mm-hmm. and when you have a habit of confidence of knowing what is true then you can recognize that the knock is happening you can turn toward that door even though it's going to feel scary because you know what's true you know the value of deepening your awareness of who you are and so the water sort of drains away and you become more and more connected with 
all the messages that all the parts of you are trying to send. Uh, the Anne Foster Sterling is a biology of gender researcher is a rough way of saying it. She's at Brown University and she has cited this analogy that we are all a three-way jazz improvisation between our central nervous system, our bodies and the world. They are oh, all yeah. always interacting with each other and shaping each other. Mm. One of the things that I am often saying to the, the people who come to work with me is that one of the very first things we have to do is, you know, move out of that denial state. And they've done that enough to, you know, come into the conversation to talk to and you, seek right. support and to talk to me. And, you know, I always say to them, you know, we cannot heal what we will not name. And what pinged for me as you were talking is that we also cannot claim what we will not name, like claim what's true about my body, claim what's true about my sexuality. So until yeah. I can name and really look at it head on, like what's actually true is I have a big butt. What's actually true is I don't like to be touched that way. What's actually true is that, you know, sometimes I look in the mirror and I, you know, beat myself up because of all the messaging, you know, that I'm right. getting on a daily basis. Um, and when we start, what's actually true that, is I was a child and I was not actually able to yeah. give or receive consent, no matter what my body was doing in the moment that, that, okay. So now that takes us into this next so, so important piece of the puzzle. One of the reasons, uh, why your tech talk, you know, my clients sent me your tech talk is because we were doing the work around sexuality and, um, you know, I had, you know, I layer in throughout various points in the beyond surviving program, the conversation about who's responsible, whose choice is it? and that your body responding does not equal consent. Right. And then we layer in more of that. But the language that you use kind of, it gave me some new language to use, which I really hmm. appreciate, which is this idea of arousal non-concordance. So can you break that down for us? What does that actually mean? Sure. Um, and how does it play a role in the cases of assault trauma? So this is a very long-standing body of research. It's not new. We are understanding it more and more deeply all the time. It's There are more and more research who are studying it from different angles, but this is really well established. We know that arousal, now when most people say arousal, they mean like feeling turned on. The technical definition of arousal is that it's just activation of the nervous system. It's just like, it's like you become yeah. aroused when your stress Stick response falls kicks and in. you kind of like jump. Yeah. That's, that's, arousal, right? that's arousal in the generic sense, but people think of yeah. sexual arousal as genital response. So if we think mm -hmm. of like whether or not our genitals are experiencing blood flow and tingling and all the other things that we associate with the, the turned on feeling in our genitals, that's one of the terms we need to understand. The other two are pleasure and desire. And it turns out there is nothing like the predictable relationship among those three things that we were all raised to believe were true. We get taught that if your genitals are responding, that means you want it and like it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's problematic. I can hear it already. Yeah. yeah. So in, can I talk about Fifty Shades of Grey? I know it's. Come on, bring it, bring it, bring All it. Right. I only made it through the first book. And then I was like, what in the world? What in the hell? Yeah. And yeah, let's, let's yeah. break it down. So just to begin with, that is not what BDSM is actually like. That is, Correct. that is an abusive relationship. Uh, and 
But I realized that that story gave a lot of people a lot of pleasure. They felt a lot of permission. That book came out right deep in the economic crisis around 2008, 2009. Mm -hmm. Um, And man, it's basically porn where a rich handsome man gives you a phone and a computer and a car and like I get that please yeah take me away exactly excuse me please when the joblessness is at its highest like give me a boyfriend like a millionaire it's, it's max yeah and owns beautiful things so and also introduce the idea of the existence of sex toys to a mainstream audience who had never heard of such a thing. And because it was like the depths of the economic crisis, small feminist sex toy shops that like gotta work hard all the time are on the brink of closing. And then there's this wave of women coming in to buy sex toys because they had never before heard of it. So a lot of good, I am not bashing 50 shades of gray. Tell you, yeah. And as a sex educator, when I got to the first spanking scene, uh, so Anastasia, our heroine, consents to it. Mm-hmm. She says yes. Um, she does not like it. She does not want it. She consents right. even though she doesn't want it. And then when it happens, she does not like it. There's not one word about her experiencing any kind of pleasure at all. And at the end of the spanking, Christian Gray, our hero slash banker, puts his fingers in her vagina and says, feel this, Anastasia. Mm. How much your body likes this. You're soaking just for me. Mm-hmm. And in that one sentence, he's reinforcing the idea that if your genitals respond, that means you like it. And that is not what the neuroscience tells us. There are separable systems of arousal, liking, and wanting. And then consent is a whole other level on top of that because you can want it, you can like it, you can be aroused, and you can still say no. That's damn true. Yes. You just made something, I think, so crystal clear because sometimes words... Uh, you know, they're, they're holding lots of different contexts and meanings, but when you just now paired liking to pleasure and desire to wanting right. that for me, like it just brought it down to like, I can understand that on a five-year-old level. Do I like this? That's pleasure. Do I want this? That's desire. And, you know, and then the arousal is the physiology, which may or may not be in alignment with my wanting or my liking. Yeah, I could having physiological reactions and responses. My pussy could be getting wet. I could be getting flushed. My heart could be starting to beat faster. And still, I'm not liking or wanting what's happening. You can have an orgasm and still exactly that not be liking or wanting what's happening. After I gave that TED talk that night, um, a woman who was in the audience came up to me and was clearly like very much in a big feeling. Um, because she told me her whole story and I won't share her stuff, but basically she had the experience of not giving consent, not wanting it, feeling totally sure she didn't like it, but also her body responded. She had an orgasm and she had been for years deeply confused 
about mm-hmm. this experience. There are also mm-hmm. substances involved, which just makes it all the more complicated in her understanding of like what what actually happened there. And so to finally have the language that like, yeah, your body can respond because look, there's sex-related stimuli happening. And your brain's job is to notice that there's sex-related stimuli happening and send the turn on signal and turn off some of the turn off signals, like get rid of some of the breaks. It's what your brain does when it's functioning correctly. You're not broken, your body, did not betray you it was your body doing what it needed to do to get through this experience and we are even the technical definition by researchers of what an orgasm is calls it a peak of pleasure so I can't use the sort of consensus definition Mm -hmm. of orgasm because I am never going to be the one who says that if your body gets aroused or you experience an orgasm that was a peak of pleasure because right. pleasure is not the same thing as arousal. Pleasure is not the same thing as arousal. Wow. This is really, really so critical. I think if I'm remembering correctly in your TED talk, you talked about how we can think about these in non-sexual terms. Like if I see a donut, I right. might start salivating, but that doesn't necessarily mean I want the donut, yeah. right? It, there's sometimes these automatic, and I think that's- the Automatically trained. Word. Pavlov's dogs, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how can we fight? And I think then this sets up a system internally where we we start to fight our body, right? Because we do, you know, until we start to understand and learn these things, which is why I'm so glad you're here today. We do hold the messaging. That was my fault. It's my shame. My body is bad. My body is wrong. I can't trust my body. I can't, um, you know, listen to my body, it's, it, you know, and all of that. And so then yeah. we, bec- we become embattled in our own skin and unable to really be at peace or joy. Yeah. One of the really complicated pieces is that people can like some of the things that happen even during unwanted non-consensual interactions. Yep. And acknowledging that actually can be true, whether or not arousal happens, like there might be aspects of it that you remember and are like that that was pleasurable and there can be this really messy mix of things you liked things you didn't like and ultimately what matters is you did not want to be there that's it I thank you for naming that it's because this comes back to where we started with this idea of confidence of knowing what's true. And one of the hardest things that we can say to ourselves is in the context of the wrong context, the wrong person, the wrong time, that something within that experience um, was pleasurable. I liked, I, you know, and I think for me, when I think about the context of the trauma with my grandfather, the other layers that grooming Mm. has a lot to do with pleasurable, 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 and safe, pleasurable, safe, pleasurable, safe, pleasurable, safe, pleasurable, not safe, right? Comfort, cuddling, nurturing, And then all of a sudden there's a hand where it's not supposed to be. And so there's this way in which I'm feeling like this feels good. This feels nurturing. And then when that other touch comes in, well, where does that touch begin and end, right? My body is holding all these different signals. And so it's a lot to parse out, but I think the biggest message that 
that we're bringing to the table today is that there's no shame period, regardless, whatever. Yeah. Like just understand it. Just give yourself permission to face it. Yeah. But then contextualize it in a way that supports you in being able to heal and, and move forward and reclaim your sex and reclaim your Mm -hmm. desire and reclaim pleasure. Is that about right? What it, yeah. 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 That's, that's exactly what it is. And I have found it's increasingly helpful for me to make sure people are specific in the way they think about a sexual experience that yes, arousal is a component of it. Um, but also there's desire, there's wanting it, mm-hmm. wanting it spontaneously out of the blue, just like being like, oh, sex seems like a good idea versus responsive desire, which is desire that begins when sex-related stimuli begin in the right context, mm-hmm. like you were saying, the right mm-hmm. person at the right time. Mm-hmm. And there's consent, which is like a whole extra layer of like you can be at a party with exact like the person that you are sexually engaged in the most and are so glad to be there but you're in public and just know that's like you like it you want it you're aroused and no you like it you want it you're aroused and what about birth control yes so checking in on on all those pieces and also of all these components, which one is the most important? Mm, yeah. It's the pleasure. Yeah. Do you yeah. like it? Yeah. A lot of survivors struggle with sexual desire, unsurprisingly. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, yeah. Because they also struggle with sexual pleasure. In a lot of ways, the activation of sexual pleasure also activates a stress response it shuts things down because those sensations are linked with that arousal being used against you as a weapon that's right yeah we talk about in um i have a program that i do with my graduates called reclaim your desire and we talk about the coupling of you know different feelings with sex so we might couple anxiety with pleasure we might couple um shame with pleasure and so when our body starts to like something nervous system neurologically wise ding 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 wait a second wait a second wait a second second, put on the brakes right because our body has to relearn liking in many ways and you know yes. uh doing that in our own process with our own touching ourselves and being with our own body and yeah i like that kind of touch oh that kind of touch feels good and you oh, are allowed kind of, to like it i'm allowed oh come on just the allowing part right giving ourselves permission to that that this is the okay to uh, be in a place of pleasure and liking and i think a big part of that healing process is just learning what you like yeah. and um because absolutely the wanting piece when there's like i just don't even want to engage in sex and when people try to work will you tell me if you agree with this thought it's one that i've been kind of you know dancing around with which is the idea that the more we try to work with people on the wanting of sex particularly women like let's say you know increase your de- desire it actually doesn't work but when we f- focus on their liking and really supporting a woman in understanding what she likes and giving her herself permission to like and permission to feel pleasure and permission to say when it stops being likable like that just kind of naturally supports desire 
Do you, yeah. do you share that thought? So is there's that- a sex therapist and researcher, Peggy Kleinplatz. She's the co-author of a book called Magnificent Sex, which I recommend mm. for anyone who's nerdy and also is interested in having uh, what she calls optimal sexual experiences. Hell yeah. Uh, and what lovely. she found is that the couples uh, and individuals who sustain a strong sexual connection with themselves and or a partner over many decades are not people who like spontaneously can't wait to like put their tongues in each other's mouths. They are people who prioritize and enjoy the sexual experiences available to them. So if she has a couple come into her office and partner A says, I know this makes my partner feel bad, but the reality is that if we never had sex again, I would be fine. Peggy's question is, tell me more about the sex you do not want. Mm-hmm. And more often than not, they're describing sex that is, as Peggy puts it, dismal and disappointing. Yeah. And if you don't like the sex available to you, of course you don't want it. Yeah. You're allowed yeah. not to want sex you don't like. You're not supposed to. There is no like, how am I supposed to like this, want this sex that I don't like? You're not supposed to like want sex that you don't like. That's so good, Emily. It's like it it's not so that simple I'm when I say it out loud. Not ever having sex again. It's I'm fine not ever having bad sex again. Or right. Sex that I don't like again. And yes. that opens up the door to questions about what kind of sex is worth wanting. Oh my gosh. Wow. What kind of sex is worth stopping doing everything else you could be doing? Maybe you've got kids to raise or school to go to or a job or parents to take care of or just want to watch TV and take a nap, right? Why would we not do any of those things and do this, frankly, pretty silly thing that humans do of like touching and licking each other and rolling around like puppies? Like, why? I mean, only if it's fun, right? Yeah. Yeah. What if we lived in a world where we, everyone only ever had sex they enjoy? Oh my goodness. I mean, it's a gateway to so much, so much creativity, authenticity, expression, you know, power, manifestation. Yeah. And so you're absolutely right. When we're in, we're in, you know, the cycle of sex as performative, sex as pleasing someone else, sex as negating my own needs. We are perpetuating so many things, you know, shame, patriarchy, misogyny, like all, like just the whole king caboodle, if you will. Surrendering basic bodily autonomy. Yeah, very simply put, that, that. When uh, I have a a crew of women um, that we get together about two times a year, Emily, and um, we call ourselves the Babs, the badass bitches. (laughs) And these are women entrepreneurs who, um, but they're also just very dear friends. And at our last retreat together, um, the conversation, you know, women together, we always talk about sex. We always talk about sex, but there was a lot up around sex for all of us. So we decided to have a pussy and pizza party and um have a really two of my favorite conversation right (laughs) have some really clear conversation about um where we are in our sex lives and what's working and what's not working and by way of that um one of the women recommended your book come as you are and so 
one of the things that I appreciated um, in this book is that you talked a bit about responsiveness to sexual stimuli. And there was one statistic that I just really thought I wanted to bring forward in our conversation today that roughly 50%, there's roughly a 50% overlap between what men find physically and mentally arousing right. compared with only 10% for women. Yeah. So can you break that a little more down for us and, and tell us, you know, how does that help us understand our experience and our relationships and even how to be communicating with a partner? Yeah. Well, for one thing, I think the reason we live in a world where uh, arousal is so closely tied in our cultural narrative to pleasure is because that's a uh, accurate description of a lot of men's sexual experience. And for, you know, all of recorded history in the West, men have been writing medicine and they perceive women as just like slightly substandard men, like whatever is true about men. Okay. And then whatever is true about women to the extent that we are different from men, that's the extent to which we're broken. And we should really do our best to try and be more like men. Mm. So I think one of the reasons there is this expectation that if you're arouse you like what's happening is because of the patriarchy basically and so a woman whose bodies does not respond uh with concordance of arousal and pleasure has to explain to a partner just mm. because my body is doing this doesn't mean they have to do this extra level of work to make sure that they're like busting this myth in their partner's mind uh, and assuring them, like, if you are wondering whether or not I like it, all you have to do is ask me. Yes. And the other question is why it's different. And honestly, the research doesn't really know. The closest explanation I've seen is that there is a closer link. So there's all kinds of things that can be sex-related stimuli. The sexual accelerator or the sexual excitation system in your brain notices all the sex-related information in the world. And that includes your extraceptive senses, the, everything you see, hear, smell, touch, or taste. It also includes everything you think, believe, or imagine. And it includes all of the sensations happening in your body is something here sex related and as far as science knows there seems to be like a fatter pipe of signal coming from the genitals of a person in an it's a boy body up to the brain giving input that like here's a sex related stimulus that's happening um and the the communication channel between the it's a girl body people and their brain is more circuitous and above all, more sensitive to context. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That is really fascinating to me. Is this part of the reason why, um, you know, women and people who identify as female tend to think more of the is the laundry done? Is the house sorted? <laughs> Do I have the taxes paid? Have I closed all the tabs? And then I can kind of like, because there's that, that circuitous route is, you know, you, you end up going into like your filing systems and all these different places such that the signal of pleasure can get a little bit lost in the mix. Is that part yeah, of what's happening there? There's a lot of levels on that one. Like it could okay. be part of like physiology. 
Okay. But it's hard to know how much of it is physiology, given the different cultural contexts in which people are raised based on the label assigned to them on the day of their birth. Like if you get the, it's a girl label, you are taught not only that your pleasure doesn't matter at all compared to a partner's pleasure. You're also taught that managing all of those things, the dishes and the laundry and the taxes and whatever else, that's your job. And if you don't do those things and you are failing as a person and you, of course, if you don't do sex, great, you're also failing as a person, but there's this been this contradictory message that if you do sex, great, you're a whore and a slut and a shameful, bad person and your pleasure is disgusting. So yeah, it's easier, like it, but don't to, like it too much. Yeah. And whatever mm. you do, behave yourself, like don't be too noisy, mm. but also men really mm. like it when women make noise. That's the performative mm-hmm. piece, right? Men yeah. really like it when women touch their own breasts. Okay. And so I'm going to touch my own breast because I heard, I read in a magazine that he likes that. Yeah. So yeah. it's easier to think about like all the things, you know, you're all allowed to be worried about instead of right. paying attention to the sensations in your body ah. about which you have been taught inherently no, no, contradictory no. ideas. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for breaking that down. I really love that. And so, you know, one of the thoughts that's coming to mind as we're talking is how um, I just want to name, and I know you're on the same page, but I think it's important to have it said out loud that though the male body, biologically male body might respond um, as well during sexual trauma, sexual abuse, um, Mm -hmm. get an erection, have an orgasm, same thing for you guys listening. You know, we've been primarily, you know, kind of leaning into the female experience, but I just want to name and acknowledge that for you guys out there who have been abused, your body responding is, it's the same exact story here for you. Um, and erection is not pleasure. It's just an erection, right? It's just an erection. Yeah, that's right. And, um, one last piece, if we might touch on is gender identity slash sexual identity. I know for me, um, as a bisexual woman, there was, you know, a time in my journey where there was a lot of confusion. Is this, you know, a trauma response? Is this just me making some shit up because, you know, I was traumatized even sometimes like it, do I find this pleasurable only because I was abused? And, um, I wonder if you had just have any perspective or thought or opinion, anything you'd like to say about that for people out there who, you know, might be questioning even like the fantasies that they have um, and and how that plays into sexual orientation or identity. Yeah. So I just want to be specific that sexual identity or orientation and gender identity are very different, different things. I know people already know you've seen the ginger the genderbred person where your sexual identity is about who you love and your gender identity is about who you are. And when your identity doesn't match the cis heteropatriarchal standard, there's going to be a process of discovery that happens. And sometimes it's a really complicated process. People may go through Uh, identifying with a particular label that feels right and gradually come to recognize that that label is not 
the one that is the best description of who they are. That is a normal part of the process as you unearth your true self from under the giant mountain of lies you've been told about who you are supposed to be. It sh- it's going to take time. It's going to be complicated. For very few people, is it just like instantaneous? Oh, though I do have, I've, I had a student back when I was working at a university um, who told me the story of arriving day one First year student on campus starts unpacking her stuff out of the car and into her dorm room. And she's like, I'm a lesbian. So like that happens. People just vary tremendously. Yeah. And I just want to give permission to the folks for whom it is not that straightforward. Pardon the expression. Like that it is a process. And there's an, an asexual sex educator named Aubrey Lancaster who talks about labels because the ace community is known for their micro labels for getting really granular in the way they think about what their response is about what's the relationship between being in love with a person and being sexually attracted to a person um and what she says is that labels are there to communicate needs and boundaries mm. and all of sexuality really genuinely is fluid for loads of people. You can expect that it's going to change gradually over time. And it it need not surprise us when that happens. I know we live in a world that teaches us that it's one or the other and it stays that way forever. And that's just not an accurate representation of what's actually true. Um, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. my sister and I, in in our book about stress, uh, we talk about the mad woman in the attic uh, with deliberately ableist language as people who both live with long-term mental health diagnoses. Uh, it's a reference to uh, Jane Eyre and mm, Rochester mm-hmm. the hero has his crazy wife in his attic and yeah. uh, Peggy McIntyre, McIntosh, Mac- Peggy McIntosh. I should look it up before I say for sure. The same person who developed the uh, white privilege backpack. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Peggy McIntosh. There we go. Right on. Uh, She developed this language of the mad woman in the attic as being this voice in our heads who oscillates between incandescent rage at the world for these ridiculous expectations that it's imposing on us and then sometimes turns toward us with that same rage of like how why are you falling so short why are you failing to be all these things that you're supposed to be and she is the product of the vast cavern the abyss between who we truly are and who the world has expected us to be yeah. We're never going to be that thing. Everybody let go right now of all the things that you were taught you were supposed to be. Let it go. Never let it go. Yes, exactly. I have whole hour long talks about Frozen and the science of emotions. Yes. <laughs> I have another one about Moana. <laughs> so when we experience that self-criticism, that self-doubt, like, am I just mm-hmm. like making things up? That's the mad woman whose job is to negotiate an unnegotiable abyss between who you actually are what's true and who you're supposed to be the lies does that make sense it makes sense and you know 
I know people often talk about like, don't listen to that critical voice, but as a person who has had a lot of success with internal family systems, Mm -hmm. listen to it. Don't believe anything a critical voice says because that's not the situation, but she's there for a reason. And you can ask her what she needs Mm -hmm. and why she's there, how long she's been there, what she's protecting you from or what part of you she is protecting. There's so much wisdom to gain from having a compassionate relationship with that mean voice in your head. I think that's really beautiful because a lot of the work that, you know, I do in Beyond Surviving is about distinguishing, you know, negative belief systems from authentic self and listening to your intuitive self versus your trauma response self. Yeah. And this layer that you're bringing in, which is a part of my work too, is that we're not just trying to shut it out. Like you're not just trying to put a block on it, but when that messaging comes in, when that voice comes in can you use it as data and information for you to help you to understand what experience you're living right now or what part of you needs a little more love, a little more nurturing. And I really like this. I've been doing a little bit of reading lately and I keep coming across these ideas of like, you know, create it as a character, give it a name. And so, you know, imagining like, okay, it's the mad woman in the attic. It's just like another piece of that, like a way of doing that. Like, okay, there's my, there's my person up there who's, you know, stomping her feet and having a moment and I don't want to just slam the door and you know pretend yeah because what happens when you slam the door on the crazy lady (laughs) what does she do she just beats on the door and screams at you yes and then it's your life right right just tears everything up yeah so having compassion for her and understanding that the screaming and the tantruming and the the even the things that she thinks are true are there for very important reasons and to turn to that and engage in conversation in a way that doesn't overwhelm you, right? Because ultimately mm-hmm. you're wanting to um, heal, you know, that part and allow that part of you to evolve and change. Yeah. Um, but then, it, you know, the voice might show up again. You think you've, you know, kind of nurtured her into the- We talked about place. this already. Oh, <laughs> you know? but we're going to talk about it again because we need to, we just need to. Yeah. Yeah. That internal voice, like she, the thing, I don't know when yours started. Um, My sister cannot remember a life without her mad woman. Mm -hmm. Who's not a person. She experiences her mad woman just as this sort of like idea, this visualization of two blobs of dust one of them is really small and one of them is really Mm. big and there's this like tension between the two of them and there's a sort of beige color like Amelia's brain is not like other people's brains but for her (laughs) when she has the feel and the the physical experience that's do you know what a dolly zoom is no oh wait in in theater or in movie making yeah Alfred Hitchcock does them a lot yeah so like the lens gets closer while the physical camera is pulled back so the person in the frame stays the same size and the background looks like it's just whooshing away from you right okay so that's that's what her mad woman looks and feels like and just recognizing that that's what it is is all she needs I have to have like a big old chat my mad woman is very much like Tikka the lava monster from Moana okay throwing lava balls at me And like, I need to be like Moana. Like I have the heart of Tefiti here. I have crossed the horizon to find you. This is not who you are. And Mm -hmm. 
when I can turn toward you with kindness and compassion, you can grow from the lava monster into Tefiti, the goddess of life and abundance. Spoiler for Moana. Wow. Sorry, folks. But, you know, it's, it happens. It's been yeah, years. That's fascinating. I'm going to have to think more about that. But when I, when I, I think I have different, I think I have more than one attic, number one. I think I have different rooms up there. Oh, and yeah. Sometimes, you know, but my strongest visual representation is my, it's like a teenage self, nine inch nails is blaring on the radio. The room is black and I have to like work really hard to just even like, can you just turn that volume down for a second so we can mm -hmm. talk? Because there's just a lot of like immediate, like rebellion and, you know, yeah. I'm going to get my way and don't tell me what to do. <laughs> And all of that kind of comes in really strong. Have, would you consider uh, so asking her why she needs the music on so loud? Yeah. What What right? does that do for you? How does that help? Right. Exactly. So, man, I, you know, goodness, I really would love to talk to you for like another three hours. And I hope <laughs> we will have another conversation, you know, down the road. But I want to be respectful of your time. I, I really thank you for coming today. And as we start to wrap up, if, if there's any like final thought or final word that you might want to offer our listeners for today. I think the most of so. I often want to give people the advice, look, everything you were taught about sexuality in the first two decades of your life was wrong. You need to start entirely from scratch, but that's not really practical advice. So instead of what not to do, the thing to do is center pleasure. When we put pleasure at the center of our definition of sexual well-being, all the other pieces fall into place. That falling into place process may be uncomfortable and difficult and take a lot of time but if pleasure is always at the center you can basically never go wrong yeah hell yeah emily well words of wisdom and you all be sure to get this book also the book burnout is fabulous so you can find both of those on amazon um you can with the uh, warning find... that we've gotten a lot of people like i started reading the introduction in the bathtub and i was crying so much i had to stop for three weeks okay it's a lot it's a lot yeah it's a lot take your time take care of yourself yeah exactly that get support read it in a group read it in, read it in a group right yes yeah for sure and then um go over to emilynagoski.com that link all the links will be in the show notes and um and so as always everyone thank you so much for joining and for tuning in um we really appreciate you being here and following us and um of course you can pop over to rachel grant coaching and learn more about um sexual abuse recovery coaching and the resources that are there um, and then come back next time because we have so much more to share and until then you take good care of you Bye, everyone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.